listening to Energy 360, a podcast by the Energy and National Security Program. I'm Sarah Ladislaw, Senior Vice President and Director of the Energy and National Security Program at CSIS, and your host for today. September is a busy month. Lots of climate activity going on all around the world. We've got the Global Climate Summit in California, a UNFCCC meeting in Bangkok to decide the rules, and a stock-taking exercise for the uh, end-of-the-year climate meetings that will take place in, under the auspices of the UN, and a New York climate summit. A lot has happened in the last several years on the Global Climate Challenge, and here to talk about that with me is Kevin Book, partner at Clearview Energy Partners and senior associate here at CSIS, and Liam Denning, who is a correspondent with Bloomberg. Thanks, guys, for joining me. Thanks. Thanks for having us. So it was just a few years ago that the global community got together in Paris and signed the Paris Climate Agreement, which at the time was heralded as a turning point for the global community. It brought all countries together to agree on a process by which they would continually ratchet up ambition to uh, reduce emissions and adapt to a changing climate, transfer technology, uh, deal with uh, the financing that's necessary to deal with climate change, all of these things finally in, in one global uh, agreement and agreed upon process. And since that time, we've had some good news and some bad news. Uh, on the bad news side of the equation, you've got the United States, which has announced its intention to eventually leave the Paris Climate Agreement, uh, and quite uh, successful thus far efforts at the federal level by the Trump administration to undo much of what the Obama administration had put in place to reduce emissions a and uh, to put together a, a, a sort of more comprehensive approach uh, to climate change uh, for the country as a whole. Uh, and then after a couple years of global emissions uh, holding steady, uh, we've got uh, recently uh, in, an assessment saying that they've increased in this uh, in the past year. Uh, on the positive side of the equation, however, you still have a, a huge amount of progress being made in terms of driving down the cost of uh, things like renewable energy and the deployment of those technologies. You see a number of countries and a huge movement on the subnational level, states and local communities, cities. Uh, all banding together and saying, no, we still think climate change is a priority and we're willing to do more and employ different tactics to try and get after this challenge. All of this begs the question, where do we stand on climate change um, and how do we think about that? Should we think about it from the global emissions reduction perspective? Should we think about it from a political will perspective? Um, as we're, you know, engaging in all of these climate activities this month, uh, where do we stand? So perhaps, uh, Kevin, let's start with you. Well, Sarah, there's a couple of different dimensions to the question you ask. The first is the, the problem itself and how the world intends to address it relative to the trend line, which you just described. Um, the second is the Paris process and all that extends from that. So with regard to the former, uh, hydrocarbons are selling like hotcakes. Uh, everybody loves them. 
and emissions continue to rise. So the 1.4% increase in 2017 you cited is not by accident, but because hydrocarbon fuels remain useful and valuable to the world, and alternatives of equal value and utility are not available at comparable cost or at comparable scale. So uh, that means that if you look for mitigation to turn the ship anytime soon, uh, then we're probably going to have to redefine soon to mean something like mid-century which fortunately comports with a lot of the, the doctrine about turning the ship on emissions, plateauing, and eventually reducing them. Uh, in terms of the, the Paris process, the Paris process had a protagonist. That protagonist was the United States. The United States went to Paris with a domestic plan to re regulate emissions from what was then its biggest emitting sector, the power sector. And as it turns out, that gave negotiators, along with a lot of preparation and the, the many events that preceded the Paris Agreement, it gave the U.S. negotiators the clout to be able to say, look, we are doing it already. Uh, we are a big emitter, the second biggest in the world, and now uh, we can be more persuasive because of the clean power plan. As it turned out, long before President Donald Trump proposed to rewrite the clean power plan, which happened last month in August, uh, the clean power plan was stayed by the Supreme Court and never went into effect, which turns out not to have mattered because one of the ironies perhaps of Barack Obama's presidency will be that he turned out to be the oil and gas president, but Donald Trump is turning out to be the green president. On his watch, emissions continue to fall from the electric power sector with continued growth of natural gas and renewable energy, not perhaps because of the president's policies, but in spite of them, and in some cases in reaction to them. And so one of the other dynamics at work is that subnational entities within the United States have started to become activist in a way that they hadn't been prior to the Trump administration. So um, is the ship turning on a hydrocarbon basis? No. Is there still a captain? Uh, as far as the Paris process goes, something of a question mark. Uh, there may be a new captain in the sort of uh, country level person of China, Europe, uh, both opportunistically seizing the helm. Uh, on the other hand, the ship may be steering itself. Okay, so uh, automated shipping. Uh, where do you, where does this ship go it, from your perspective, Liam? Uh, well, I like the uh, the ship steering itself uh, analogy there, um, mainly because you know, from my perspective, um, uh, the most important thing that kind of crosses my desk is what I'm seeing companies do. Uh, and what's happening kind of at, at the ground level um, rather than necessarily the the kind of overarching frameworks of things like Paris. Um, and I guess that gives that gives a kind of a a mixed picture of optimism and pessimism. Um, I do think it's it's perhaps a little bit of a fantasy to say that um, you know, in some ways, the market is making its own decisions. We're seeing companies, um, for example, like tech giants taking their energy fate in their own hands. We're seeing ever more people sign up for distributed energy and that sort of thing. I think it's kind of a fantasy to say that that on its own will change things. Um, you know, the elephant in the room here is that the, 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 the primary equation that we're trying to solve for here is, you know, dialing down our carbon emissions and trying to prevent, um, you know, further warming of the planet. Uh, and we can't really do that unless we price those outcomes and we're still not effectively pricing them. And there are, uh, you know, very stubborn obstacles to that. Um, 
be it uh, in Congress, be it increasingly, I think, in, in the U.S. court system and, the, and probably the Supreme Court. Um, on the other hand, it is hopeful to see, uh, you know, as Kevin was saying, the kind of the sub-national actors, uh, states uh, in Europe, cities, uh, and, and um, you know, even incumbent industries like the power industry simply deciding uh, we have to think in terms of 20, 30, 40 year timeframes. And on that basis, it simply doesn't make sense anymore to keep doubling down on coal. I can remember five or six years ago interviewing, um, you know, power sector executives. And it really was the minority who were talking about the need to shift the generation mix and think differently about US generation. And, you know, in, in a fairly short time, that has kind of flipped on its head. I think if you ask most serious utility executives now, they are not only merely talking about, uh, you know, never investing in a coal plant again, um, but increasingly just getting out of the business of generation altogether because the market structure has changed. So, you know, Kevin, you brought up who the the captain of the ship, you know, and and what country might, you know, be the captain of the ship. And then Liam, you've just introduced the idea, which I think is often harder for people to track, which is maybe it's not a policymaker at a national level, maybe it's a subnational level, but also maybe it's companies, right? Maybe it's the changes that are going on in the energy system that are where you know, people are tracking progress. I know when I speak to folks who are very interested in creating more change in the global climate system in a way that will, excuse me, the global energy system in a way that will reduce emissions, they're much more interested in commercial activity now than they were, say, four or five years ago when they thought policy was where most of the action was. But if we think about that, what country right now is the most important in terms of where we're seeing substantive change on this front. So you'll hear U.S. policymakers say, we're the place where emissions reductions are happening, so therefore we are still in a leadership role. You'll hear people from the Trump administration say that uh, often, though only usually when prompted. Uh, you'll hear people from Europe, you know, talking about the strong policy role that they play. But then you look at places like China and India, where most of the energy demand is coming from, the changes in the way that they're doing that are sort of more of the, you know, places where people are looking for um, – uh, ways to have impact on the emissions trajectory. I mean, what do you, how should we think about this? Is it like a political exercise? Is it a systems engineering exercise? And in, from that standpoint, which is the most important country out there? Well, it would be tempting to say the most important country is the biggest emitter, which is China. And in almost all respects, when you're talking about molecules in the atmosphere, that will be true. China is the biggest emitter and uh, their ability to marshal resources and exert authority by command rather than market force uh, means that they can make fairly big changes with substantial long-term impacts. Uh, it's not obvious that their changes are drawing uh, the kind of success and traction that had been hoped for. The trial cap and trade markets aren't changing the world from China up. So it might also be worth thinking about who the example setters are besides. And in that respect, uh, much though it may chagrin those who look at the United States with uh, uh, disdain on a climate front, the U.S. is extremely important. The example set by the Trump administration in stepping away from activism has been followed. It's been emulated in Canada. Uh, at a subnational level, the province of Ontario, which had gone green uh, under prior leadership, under the premiership of Doug Ford, uh, is now choosing a different path. 
Uh, we've seen different paths in Australia, on and off again like a light bulb. But now Brazil, uh, maybe veering towards an election with a different climate outcome. Some of this is inspired by the U.S. example. Now, the U.S. example is a little unfair because the U.S. is succeeding in its emissions reductions progress irrespective of the orientation that has come out of the White House, at least for now. Uh, on the other hand, it provides a pretext for other countries to say, maybe we won't. And that makes the, this year, which is the, the preliminary stock take within the Paris process, the discussion of implementation and rules, and all those negotiations perhaps a little bit harder to have an example uh, where somebody who can pass the test without studying and has decided that they're going to blow off class is still the thing everybody watches. Leah, what do you think? Uh, well, I think China is still obviously the country to watch, and, and I would agree. It's, it's, it's not clear that what it's doing is succeeding. I think what is clear is that if, um, you know, if, if we are to have a, a shot at actually solving all of this, China will be crucial, um, not simply because it's the, repos the, the biggest emitter, but also, you know, continues to be in all the projections a huge growth market for energy uh, and consumption. Um, you know, if I look at, for example, things like uh, vehicle electrification, um, it's it's clear not just for the dozens of companies that are based in China that uh, getting electri getting electrification right is is critical, but also for many foreign car makers, partly because they're looking at you know stagnation in their home markets, and and China is kind of the ball game. Um, I think the other thing that's important is, you know, part of what makes this such a difficult thing to deal with is that, you know, we talk about the energy transition and and transition, I think, means different things in different parts of the world. In, in you know, in the US and Europe, it really is a transition in the sense of how do we transition away from a, a an already established infrastructure to something very different. Whereas in China, it's it's kind of a mixture. It's it's we have some of that, but also they are in some respects starting with a blank slate. And as they create facts on the ground now and in into the future, how they deploy those investment dollars is, is going to be critical in terms of where we stand 20 or 30 years from now. And I think it's also worth, you know, worth pointing out just the the, the, the sheer impact China can have on energy technologies, which which hew much more to the kind of the technology side of things rather than the uh, resource ownership side of things. I mean, we only have to look at what China did to, you know, the cost of solar panels over the last 10 years, uh, you know, and anyone looking at that from the outside would say that was the most irrational thing <laughs> you can imagine. Um, but it did happen. And it has transformed that industry. And, and, you know, that is perhaps something we will also see in things like, you know, electric cars, who knows? Well, and I think the case of China is complicated as well by the fact that they, you know, they're investing so much in infrastructure outside of China now to deal with some of the spare capacity within their own economy. And it doesn't 
proved to be just clean energy infrastructure, right? I mean, they're adding a lot of emissions to the deck by the sort of coal capacity and steel capacity that they're trying to offload into projects in other countries. I think there's a big focus on trying to convince them that they could really amplify the leadership role that they're playing in doing something else. But they have all these domestic economic mm-hmm. constituencies that they've got to satisfy first. And so they've really kind of... Uh, uh, that's a complicated thing to try and get them to take a leadership role on, but it's certainly an area people are focusing on. Yeah. I mean, I think to be to be clear, it's, it's in no way certain that they will, you know, quote unquote, do the right thing. Um, uh, what is clear is what they do will, will set the direction of a lot of this. Kevin, you had mentioned the the international uh, negotiation process, the UNFCCC. They're in Bangkok now. We've got a stock taking going on this year. We've got a rule book. We're going to be all set, right? Yeah, of course. Signed, <laughs> sealed, ready to go. Uh, Paris is absolutely non-binding right now, and nothing that's going to happen this year is going to change that. Uh, however, the the pretext on which Paris was based, which was that shame would guide actions of national actors on the world stage, questioned by many at the time, and uh, I was one of them, uh, doesn't seem to be uh, coming true. And so some of, some of the questions that follow from the two things you mentioned, the rule book and the, uh, the, the stock take, uh, could ultimately point towards the viability of Paris uh, and perhaps Paris growing fangs. Let me, let me explain. So uh, on the, I mean, fangs are interesting in their own right. Don't get me wrong. But the, so the, 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 the idea of looking to see how you're doing and comparing against the, the national uh, – commitments that were made is to start conversation about the next wave of commitments. That was the point of this preliminary stock take. Before they do that, they have to know what the implementation rules are. And those implementation rules are riven by the same conflicts that have been part of climate debate since the very start, which is that the less developed economies say, you highly developed economies emitted for years, you got all that area under the curve, why must we suffer? Uh, So that division of pain uh, is still underlying the overall process, and we haven't even gotten a first look at how we're doing. Uh, It doesn't seem incredibly auspicious. Uh, What it does suggest is that the fangs could grow on a sort of bottom-up basis. Trade war seems to be a thing now. I don't. We've talked about that in other podcasts here at CSIS, Uh, and it doesn't seem to be a thing that's going away anytime soon. And climate provides a mechanism for essentially charging other economies with abusing the rules of trade by dumping goods on a regulated uh, economy that came from an unregulated source. Uh, And so the the idea of a carbon surcharge, a carbon border adjustment, a carbon tariff, a carbon duty, uh, not that far out of the realm of reason right now and maybe a bit closer. The collapse of cooperation at Paris could point towards, uh, in, in, in a form, a price on carbon, maybe one that nobody wants. Uh, but if they can't get along, uh, that might be the next phase. The greener economy is going after the less green. So that's really interesting. I mean, a couple of things there. One, we sort of totally misjudged uh, different countries, particularly the United States, to not succumb to being shamed, right, uh, on a number of fronts. And then secondly, the idea that um, 
that the thing that's moving, which is trade and a sort of devolution of the trade architecture, or at least a lot of friction within trade architecture, could be the next vehicle for moving issues with regard to these age-old disagreements on who's responsible for carbon pollution or emissions, who should take the ownership for those sorts of things. All of that is very, that sort of aspect of this makes me interested in what like investors and some of the companies, Liam, that you talk to, you know, frequently, are they starting to think about things like that? Because I think there's two levels of thought here. One is like people who think about where climate could go next, right? But then there's people who are, you know, making investments or operating in companies who want to do the right thing, quote unquote, on climate or have climate strategies or investors that are interested in climate strategies and things like that, but they're not necessarily interested in the border tariff adjustment discussion. Again, thank you very much. Is this something you're hearing at all about when you talk with folks? I think we're still in that stage. Uh, First of all, I just want to say, you know, most of my life has been guided by shame. So I think (laughs) that was a good observation. Um, I think we're still in that stage of, uh, you know, make me good, but not yet. Uh, That sort of, you know, Augustinian uh, (laughs) purgatory or whatever you want to call it. Um, Let's let's just take a look at the, you know, what happened this year with with some of the uh, oil majors upping their, you know, upping their game on, on climate risk disclosure, which, you know, I think to any... Uh, any outside observer was was not the most groundbreaking analysis ever released to the financial community. Um, uh, you know, and, and and as you hear about companies giving giving more and more presentations, uh, more and more uh, lip service to to uh, you know paying attention to these issues, it, it really doesn't feel like it has a lot of substance behind it. Not, not simply because the disclosures themselves, while much more fulsome now uh, in terms of volume, uh, are not terribly useful. You know, if you look at the scenarios that get put out by uh, the oil majors in their, in their, in their climate outlooks, uh, you know, they tend to be along the lines of, well, we looked at some scenarios and it turns out we are really super efficient. And no matter what happens, we will be the last people standing, which you know, is interesting and um, but, but not really verifiable given the level of disclosure. You know, often they will talk about whatever the reserves were last year. They won't talk about the, you know, billions of, of barrels of, of resources that they also talk about in their uh, investor conferences. Um, so I, it, it feels like we're getting more and more noise from investors about the need to look at this. Um, it feels to me still much more of a, a, a London thing than a New York thing in that respect. Um, you know, you generally don't see op-eds in the Wall Street Journal from prominent investors saying we need to look at this. You do get them in the Financial Times. Um, and I think that, that to me, this is a problem not merely for all of us, but specifically for the oil industry, um, because if if these analyses really do reflect thinking within the company, it does seem quite blinkered to me. Um, it certainly doesn't seem to really take account of any sort of disruption on this front, be it policy-led or, or who knows what's what's going to happen. And and in some ways, it feels like a lost opportunity. You know, I was on on the way here today. I was thinking about. 
um, what might have happened 30 years ago if if um, if the leading energy companies had said, you know, our scientists believe um, climate change is, is a real risk. Um, we need to do something about it. Uh, but on the other hand, we are also the biggest repositories of energy knowledge on, and technical expertise on the planet. We have enormous balance sheets. We have great government contacts. We can make ourselves a, a real um, force at leading this. Um, and I think that moment has definitely passed. These are still very large companies, very well connected, uh, obviously, and um, you know, very well capitalized. Um, but I just, I just don't think anyone really takes them seriously as agents for change. Even, even if they were to come out tomorrow with the deepest analysis on all this, I, I think the moment has passed. That's interesting. What do you think that means for where we're going to go next on this, right? So it, like, just take for like the United States. We, you know, if you think about, say, the next election cycle, because it's clear that this administration is not necessarily going to do a ton on this issue. But even if you look within the course of this administration, you've got, you know, one political party that will sort of talk about climate change sometimes, but doesn't really care about it as a priority for re-engineering the economy, right, to do something about reducing emissions. And then you've got sort of the example of California, which is essentially re-engineering huge portions of its energy system and its economy to try and tackle this problem with politics and policy language that is increasingly speaking to what you're saying, Liam, which is like that moment for a rational transition from here to there is gone. And for taking energy companies and working with them to to sort of go that route over a multi-decadal time frame, we need something much more drastic, whether it's much more ambitious policy signals or if you're seeing sort of on an environmental uh, uh, activist front, just a flat-out rejection of using more fossil fuels and that sort of thing. I mean, is is that essentially what the U.S. discussion on climate change is going to look like between now, the next election cycle, and maybe in that... Augustinian purgatory that you mentioned a little bit earlier, Liam. I mean, it, it it feels that way certainly, and I think there's a there's a sort of a there's a structural issue here, just just in the way that industry operates. You know, one of the one of the most striking aspects of what we've been seeing uh, in terms of the development of renewables and, and and rethinking the distribution of our energy is is this sort of swing back from, you know, I'm, I'm going to really generalize here, so sorry, but this 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 kind of swing away from uh, real dependence on big energy towards, you know, quote unquote, smaller energy um, uh, solutions. Um, so, you know, d- getting away from the idea that everything will depend on mega projects that take 10 to 15 years to, to, to spring up to, you know, for example, the offshore wind farm that opened in, in the UK this year, which opened on time on budget after after two years. Um, and I think part of the problem for the large energy companies, and this isn't just the oil companies, um, is they're not set up to do that. Their, their great strength has always been the kind of command and control mega project management, um, really not customer facing businesses. Energy has been uh, very much a supply driven business. Uh, the customer was was you know quite low down on the on the list of priorities, and I know you know I, I did I did think earlier when um, 
you know, Kevin, when you said everyone loves hydrocarbons, I, I would probably just I would nuance that slightly. I, I, I think everyone, everyone uses them and depends on them. I don't think anyone loves them. Uh, I don't think anyone relishes no, that's standing fair. on that windy forecourt, you know, paying their gasoline tax to fill up CEOs their car. CEOs make that point. Right. Yeah. yeah. So I, <laughs> I just think um, it, it, there's a certain fragility in there, even even as we focus on the giant area chart of of dominance by fossil fuels, if trends were to keep going towards, you know, products that can help us use energy more smartly, more efficiently, uh, cleanly, if people care more about that, um, I think there is a fragility in a product that takes no account of that. Can I? This is a part of the session where we get into the energy food analogies, right? They usually yes. crop yeah. up at some point. <laughs> and so, look, America's in love with fitness and dieting and gets fatter every year, right? Is, is the problem really that the, the companies that provide food uh, are irresponsibly doing so? Uh, are, they, are they the actors or is it the consumers of the food? You say that no one loves oil, but they certainly do love what it does for their industrial economies and for their transportation use of hydrocarbons especially. And in emerging economies, there are alternatives, but there aren't very many bigger good ones. And so um, one of the, the issues, I guess, is to ask, when does society itself begin to go on a diet of its own volition? When does that sentiment become a factor? Uh, you know, I, I've argued in the past, again, continuing the analogy, that everyone starts the diet after the heart attack. And what we need is the, is the very big event that galvanizes public consciousness. Environmental activists keep pointing to events and saying, these are the big events. But maybe the big events haven't yet emerged, or maybe that isn't actually true because the events aren't big enough. So the, the efforts of the people who are trying to persuade a change in behavior are fundamentally failing to connect with the people whose behavior must change because those people don't see value in the diet that you have prescribed them. In fact, I would argue that we, we, there's all these academic discussions about whether the discount rate used in one report properly encapsulates the way the present generation values future climate mitigation costs. There probably is no discount rate, which you can use, because we're just not willing at this point as a society to take the kinds of radical change that are, that, are that, are that are necessary to achieve the sorts of outcomes that are being discussed. Now, you point very rightly to California, right, which is like saying, oh, yeah, super athletes, well, you know, they can do just about anything. Oh, really? You know, he's got 5% body fat and, you know, he can, he can run a mile in three minutes. Well, why can't you just be like him? Uh, there's only one California. It's not a fair comparison. So what's interesting is you guys are pointing out um, – an interesting argument that came out in a, a you, you mentioned the Wall Street Journal, Liam, and the kind of editorials that appear. And one appeared this past week by Walter Russell Mead that basically said the environmental mo movement needs a new shtick, right? You need to stop asking people to do stuff they're not going to do because there are no solutions that are there available. We need to do things that are make much more sense, like telecommute, which I'm not quite sure how that fit into the whole thing. But the fundamental argument was that that if we want to solve any of these problems, we have to have much more technology-focused uh, approaches, right? So he was basically 
making the argument for the techno-optimist version of the environmentalist organizations, which is, you know, you're not going to be able to solve this problem until you have better technologies, more technologies, and you apply them in ways that are not nearly as disruptive for people's lives because people are perpetually dieting and getting fatter, and that's not going to be a way that we solve this. There's a really good book out uh, called The Wizards and the Prophet by Charles Mann, who basically say this is the the fundamental uh, fissure within the environmental movement for the last 100 years, which is you're either a conservationist and think you have to conserve and change your behavior to deal with environmental problems, or you're a techno-optimist and you need to sort of, you know, figure your way out of this through technological innovation. Are we sort of completely still stuck in the middle on that? Or have we, over the last, say, maybe four or five years, come closer to deciding, no, no, we need more technologies that can solve these problems? Or, no, we don't need more technologies. We need policies and things that change people's behavior to adopt the technologies that we have and just make those changes and and that sort of thing. I mean, are we still stuck in the same sort of middle spot we've been for the last 100 years? I mean, President Obama made a decisive shift in rhetoric, which I don't think got the attention it deserved. He started talking a lot more about adaptation, right? Sort of an acceptance of the world as it is and a recognition that mitigation wasn't the only recipe that was available and it might not even be the best. It was part of a strategy as opposed yeah, to it'd, the Yeah, it'd be one of a suite of options yeah. and maybe we, we need to start thinking practically about adaptation. The techno-optimists, though, have a lot of evidence in their court, right? The the development of resource extraction technologies has been so rapid and effective that it would be foolish to think that some form of mitigation or cleaning technology couldn't also be developed with the same rapidity and diffusion. What's needed is the same thing that brought oil out of the ground in the first place, which is the profit motive, right? There has to be a financial incentive for the mines that are capable of this and the companies that have the wherewithal to deliver to bring those technologies to bear. As it stands today, that simply doesn't exist. So Kevin is a capitalist wizard. Liam, (laughs) are you more a wizard or a profit? No, I mean, I I agree with... Kevin, the, the 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 problem here, and and you know, I, I read that op-ed too, is that there's just a there's a certain disingenuousness to all this because uh, um, yes, the profit motive is is absolutely needed, but what we lack uh, what we lack are, are proper price signals, and so what we end up with is you know this smorgasbord of of targets and regulations and and all the sort of things that actually the the Wall Street Journal op-ed page rails against uh, could could in some senses be cured with you know a price signal um, you know I, I said earlier what we're trying to do is is solve this equation for a for an outcome that will benefit everyone but one of the missing pieces is putting a price on the desirability of that outcome and um, you know it, it's quite clear that you know when you say are we are we stuck certainly politically we are still stuck. This is this is a rather obvious thing that, you know, still a large part of the political system in this country doesn't, and in other countries, I won't just single out America, but that just don't want to acknowledge. Um, and I think, you know, part of the, part of the problem with the, with the technology route is, um, is that I have, I have, having witnessed what's happened in just in the past 
10 years, I have great faith that, that more progress can be made. But obviously, more progress would be made if there was that clear pricing signal, just as, you know, the first frackers had. So, yeah, it sounds like a combination of a prophet and a wizard, uh, but capitalism certainly uh, seems to be the recipe uh, that we're talking about. Well, guys, thanks so much for spending your time with me today. Uh, it's been a good discussion, uh, and hopefully we can do it again soon. Thanks for having Thank me. Thank you. You've been listening to Energy 360. 